Romans chapter 6. That's where we are. That's page 942 if you're using that blue Bible. Well, if you, have, if you have been here any of the last three Sundays, then you know that I have repeatedly said that beginning with chapter 6, we have entered a section of Romans that deals with the subject of Christian, what? Thank you. Sanctification. Excellent. Christian sanctification. And this is the teaching, beloved, that basically says that God saves you. He saves you in order to change you. to make you more and more free from sin and like Christ in your life. And beloved, this really is truly one of the greatest blessings of our salvation. I probably shouldn't go down this path, but mm, it's going to happen. Because I have it here in my notes, but I was thinking, I don't know if I want to... So, generally speaking, when I watch many of the teachers on television, Bible teachers. Some are good, but many are not. Many are false teachers. Many are what I would refer to as, and others refer to as, prosperity preachers. Prosperity preachers. And you'll pick it up right away because they'll get around to it or they'll open with it, but they always come back to this idea that, you know, God saves you so that you can be wealthy, so that you can be healthy, so that you can be successful. That's so foreign to the Bible. The Apostle Paul would never say such things. He didn't. And what I find glaringly absent from their preaching is this very subject, that God saves you so that you would become more and more free from sin and like Christ. Just watch. Actually, I don't want you to watch them, but if you, <laughs> if you do, or if it happens to be on one late night, you watch. You won't hear the discussion about sin and righteousness. You won't hear. You'll hear it about money, and oh, by the way, send in some money so that God can bless you with more money so you can send me more money. You'll hear that stuff. You'll hear you should be living a victorious life. I agree. But then it's about health. A victorious Christian life is a life that's ridding itself of sin. Hello. Right? And beloved, this is the main issue. This is the main issue that that wrecks so many relationships and marriages and churches. It's not the fact that they don't have enough money. It's not even the fact that their health is bad. It is sin. It is sin. They can be in perfect health. They can be wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. But if they aren't addressing their sin, if they're not dealing with that through the power of the Spirit, that marriage is wrecked for sure. That relationship is doomed. That church will disintegrate. That business will fail. Huh? It's sin, beloved. It's sin. So this is the greatest thing we can talk about because it's what the Bible talks about. God saves us so that he might change us. 
One pastor, John MacArthur, commenting on Romans chapter 6, he said this, Some people believe, listen, some people believe that salvation is just a transaction. God just writes it down and changes your ultimate destiny. You understand what he's saying? So, you were destined for hell, now you're destined for heaven. End of story, that's salvation. But then they don't necessarily believe that this salvation changes them. And some believe you can really be saved and still go on living the same kind of life you lived before. And he says that is absolutely foreign to the teaching of this chapter, Romans chapter 6. Foreign. It's great. It's, it's outside of the base. No way will you read chapter 6 of Romans and get that from there. That God saves you so you can, and you can just go on living the same way you used to live before. Or that God saves you just for the purpose of making sure he rescues you out of hell. But he just leaves you to your mess. And I've said this before, I'm very passionate about this because I, I feel like this is missing and many people don't hear this. They don't hear it. Can you imagine a God, a loving God, who saved us and then left us in our mess? What kind of love is that? That isn't love. That's not our God. He saves us. He rescues us, not only from the penalty of sin, right? What else does he rescue us from? The power of sin in our lives. Beloved, let me put it like this. Let me put it like this. A salvation that doesn't change you or doesn't make you any different than the way you were before, and by that I mean it doesn't over time make you more like Christ. It doesn't change your relationship to sin at all. A salvation like that is not described in the Bible. There is no salvation like that in the Bible. There, people might preach a salvation like that, but it's not from the Word of God. You hear what I'm saying? One other quote here from that pastor, John MacArthur. He says, listen, when a person is saved, there is a very great transaction that takes place on the legal aspect. See, that's justification. That's what we were talking about, right? Chapter 3, chapter 4, we're, we're getting in all that. God, God justifies us. So God declares you righteous. That's that great transaction. But there is also a great transformation that takes place. You are taken out of the dominion of sin and placed into the dominion of God's Grace, working righteousness and life. That's glorious, beloved. That's something to jump up and down about. Yeah. One of you are very excited. <laughs> I'm going to try to help get you there again. This has got to stick with you, beloved. I mean, this is not a rah-rah speech we get all fired up about just on Sunday and then forget on Monday. This is our life I'm talking about. This is our very lives. This is Christianity. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read the entire text through 14. You know we're in a long, long series here, part 4. Who knows how long this will be? But we're working through it slowly. I told you I would do that intentionally because it's so important. So, verse 1, the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Question. He answers, by no means, exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, Christians, would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Inside of your bulletins, you'll find an outline. It's the same one we've been using now for the last three weeks. And here's what it says. We will continue, and that's what we're doing, to examine Paul's important question, explanation, and exhortation. That's how I've broken this passage or section up. Question, explanation, exhortation. And we're doing that so that we might understand the true foundation for our sanctification and learn how to experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. Okay? That's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. So we have the question, the explanation, the exhortation. And today, we've already dealt with the question. That's what we spent actually the last three weeks dealing with. And because we had to do some preliminary work in that introductory work, but we're actually going to move on from that important question. And I'm talking about the one that's found in verse 2, in case you haven't been here. And we're going to begin looking at the verses that follow verse 2. And that is where we're going to find additional commentary, okay? Commentary or information that's helpful to us regarding Paul's rhetorical question in verse 2. Okay, so the explanation is concerning the question the explanation we're going to look at. And that question, just by way of reminder, the one in verse 2, what is it? How can we who die to sin still live in it? Which I want to remind you is a question Paul used to show the absurdity of the idea that is behind the question that he actually put forth in verse 1. And we've talked about this already, but the idea was that Christians should actually continue in sin. This is the absurd idea that they would actually continue in sin so that God's grace may abound. Or the thought that God's grace should be given an opportunity to display itself in an even greater degree by overcoming increasing sin. And, and where do they get this idea? Where would this idea even come up? Well, it comes up from the end of chapter 5 where Paul says, listen, God brought in the law. That increased the trespass. That increased sin. But you know what? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that's what God does. He, he overcomes sin. His grace overcomes it. But then should we think, if that's, if that's what he's doing, if that's what his purpose is, maybe then we should sin all the more. That grace might abound. Wow, look at that, God. Look at you. Are you crazy? That's what Paul is saying, okay? I'm just going to put it real clear. He's saying, you're nuts. 
Maybe he wouldn't say it that way, but he'd say, that is completely unacceptable. That's an unthinkable idea or thought. Why? Because, Paul says, how can a true Christian continue or remain or live in sin when he or she has already died to it? Huh? That's the question. And the implied answer, it's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for information. He's asking the question, and the answer is assumed. The answer is they can't. They won't continue in sin as a way of life. Why? Because they died to sin. They died to sin. And last week, listen, last week I pointed out that to say that the Christian has died to sin doesn't mean they are dead to the influence of sin. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they're immune to the temptation of sin. Remember I said, I wish that was true. It also doesn't mean that they don't ever sin. (laughs) That's not what Paul is saying. Because then all of us would be like, I guess I'm not a Christian. Right? You understand why? Because you've sinned, right? You probably sinned. I bet you sinned this morning, but you could be sinning right now. (laughs) Not that I'm receiving some special revelation from God or anything. That's kooky talk. No, nothing like that. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? You got up this morning. If you have kids in your house, you, you probably sinned this morning. I, I can almost assure that. Yes, all right. Um, but this, this is what it does mean. It means that to be dead to sin, it means that we have been permanently separated from sin's enslaving power or reign. That sin no longer has dominion or authority or control over the Christian. That sin is no longer the Christian's master. Huh? That's what it means. But as we shall see as we work our way through the text, that doesn't mean, I said this last week, it doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't have a master or that they are autonomous or free from any power over their lives. It doesn't mean that. We will see that. While it is true that the Christian is no longer under the power and reign of sin, it is also just as true that they are now under the saving and transforming power and reign of God, and he is determined to make his people look like his righteous son, Jesus Christ. He is determined. And he has called, empowered, energized, and enabled every Christian to pursue Christ-likeness. And that, beloved, is why the Apostle John can make such strong statements like he does in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, John's not saying he'll cease to sin. He's saying he will not sin as a way of life. There will be repentance. There will be righteousness expressed in that Christian life because he has been freed from sin. Now, we're going to begin to look at verses 3 and 5. That was all introduction again. And in them, we will find further explanation concerning our death to sin. Okay, And we're going to learn more about the foundation or basis for our Christian sanctification. You ready? Can I say something else? 
I know you probably, it'll be hard to believe this right now. It's going to be a little less preachy because you're like, yeah, right. It's already start off preachy. It's just going to continue to be preachy because that's, I like that. That's what I do. All right. But we're going to get to a spot. Uh, we're going to get to a spot here where it's going to become more teachy. Okay, so I'm going to really need you guys to focus, pay attention. Not that you don't, but I'm just telling be prepared for that. We'll transition. Maybe. We'll see. Somehow I'll probably make it preachy anyway. But Romans 6, chapter 6, let's do again, just verses 1 through 5, because like I've said before, I'll say it again. The best part of my sermon is when I read the Word of God. What shall we say then, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So now we're focused in on verses 3, 3 through 5. Now, I, I, I feel that it's necessary for me to address an issue concerning verses 3 and 4 that has caused quite a bit of discussion and debate among Bible teachers and can be a little confusing. Okay, That's that teachy part we're going to get to in a second here. But before I do that, before we get into all of that, I want you to understand what the main point or the big idea of this section is. So I'm just going to give it to you right up front. And I would like you to keep that in your mind as we work through the various details of the text. Okay? You with me? We just read verses 3 through 5 in context, 1 through 5. I'm going to give you the big idea. We'll come back and we'll dissect that big idea next week, actually. We'll come back and, and work through that, but I want you to have it as we move through this section, and then I want to address this difficult subject that comes, comes up in this section, and you need to know it so that I can go further. Are you with me? I'm going to do this slow. Here's the big idea. Just listen. Take notes if you can. Or Here's the big idea of 3 through 5. The moment, and I'm going to say it a couple of different ways. The moment someone becomes a Christian, there is something very significant and meaningful that happens to them. Spiritually speaking, that is. Okay? Something very significant, something very meaningful that happens to the person when they become a Christian. And when I say spiritually speaking, I mean they can't see it then with their eyes. They can't see it with their eyes, but that doesn't mean it's any less true or real. Are you with me? Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not true or real, right? Right? Okay, okay good, good, just checking. What is it? It is the fact that they are united with Jesus Christ. Listen, we're going to get into some, a little bit heavier stuff this morning, a little bit deeper thinking and concerning your salvation, but it's important. It's important. So I hope you got some rest last night, and your minds are, I hope you begin your Sunday on Saturday night. Remember I said that a long time ago? I know many of you still don't do it, 
but hopefully the coffee will kick in at this point. This significant thing, this meaningful thing is the Christian has been united with Jesus Christ. They are, listen, they are joined to him. They are incorporated into Christ. I'm using different terminology. I'm saying the same thing. They are baptized into Christ. And this spiritual union with Christ, because that's what Paul is talking about. It's a spiritual union with Christ is truly life transforming because, here it is, being joined to Christ, being united to Christ spiritually, the Christian is also joined to Christ's death and resurrection. To his death and resurrection, which frees them from sin's power or any claim that sin had on them. So, being joined to Christ in his death, the Christian has died to sin. Do you see the connection? Being joined to Christ in his death, the Christian has died to sin. And not only that, as if that wasn't enough, but just as Christ didn't stay dead, but rather was raised from the dead by God the Father, we who are in Christ or, with not, or are united with Christ have also, have also been raised with Jesus so that we might experience a newness of life. A life lived for the glory of God, a life that would over time be characterized more by righteousness than by sinfulness. Did you get that? We're going to try it another way, okay? I'm going to say all that another way, and this is just one really long sentence, because I'm I, for whatever reason, the way I write, I don't ever stop. Like, I don't break. I just, I, have, I just don't. I just continue to write, 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 write. There's no break in my thought. Sometimes that makes it hard to follow. So this is a long sentence. Brace yourself. Here we go. It is the Christian's spiritual union with Christ that unites him or her with Christ's death and resurrection. And this spiritual reality is the very basis or foundation for the Christian's sanctification. And it is the very reason they can no longer live in a constant state of sin or sinfulness or continue in a life dominated by sin, which is why the question in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, is simply a question that Paul utterly rejects because it is absolutely unthinkable in light of what has happened spiritually to the person who has been saved or placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that? I mean, that took me like three hours, guys. <laughs> so I don't expect, you know, that's why I repeat these things and say them over and over again because... I'm just trying to crystallize the thought here, all right? I'm going to give you another one, but I didn't say this. John MacArthur said this. This is what he said. This is how he words it. We're all kind of getting at the same idea. We're talking about the spiritual union with Christ, this transformation, this thing that happened when a person becomes a Christian. Listen to what he says. He's even kind of working through it. He says, when you were saved, these are his words. Now listen to this, and you can't explain it ultimately, right? This is a spiritual reality. We are dipping into the deep side of the pool, Concerning our salvation, all right? 
This is real theology here, good and strong theology. He says, and you can't explain it ultimately, only in the simple sense. When you were saved, when you came to Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, by some divine miracle, you were placed into Jesus Christ and you were taken back 2,000 years and you died and you were buried, just to make sure we know you were dead. And you were buried, listen, so that the old life could die and that you could rise to walk in what? Newness of life. Now listen, a death took place. And what comes out of the grave is something very different than what went into that grave. And then he quotes scripture. If any man be in Christ... He hopes to be someday. Maybe he is. He is. If he's in Christ, he is a new creation. Let me, let me read that to you in the ESV in its entirety. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Here's another next sentence. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. The new has come. Now, we're going to come back to all that. We're going to come back to all that, and we're going to look at that in some detail next week. Okay? I just want you to have that now, because that's rich. That's something to meditate on, okay? But you need that as we move through the rest of the passage, and we begin to pull apart some of the details, some of the really good details. But now I've got to come back here to verses 3 and 4, and I need to address an issue. And that issue is Paul's use of the words baptized and baptism. Baptized and baptism. I'm not going to ask, I don't want you to show your hands. But I'm just wondering, don't show your hands. I'm just wondering, when we were moving through the text and you read those words, were you thinking of that ceremony, water baptism? Were you thinking that that's what Paul was talking about? That when someone is baptized in that ceremony, that that's when they're united to Christ. Well, that's the discussion. It's an important one. So I'm going to do my best to keep this as simple as I can and hopefully inform you concerning the issue rather than needlessly confuse you. I just got to tell you, this particular thing, I mean, there's just pages and pages of people trying to work through exactly what Paul's getting at. So here, I want to start off by telling you something that if you don't know, it's important for you to know. This is the teachy part, okay? This is the teachy part. Every time a reference is made to baptism in the scriptures or the Bible, it does not, listen, it does not always refer to the Christian ritual or practice of baptism. It does not always, which, just in case we're not aware... It's, that's where a person who has placed their faith in Christ is baptized or they're put under the water and raised up out of it. And so many of you have undergone baptism or at least you've seen it done. Are we yes? So you know what I'm talking about, baptism, right? That, you know what I'm talking about, okay. So I'm going to reiterate, some references to baptism in the Bible have absolutely nothing to do with water or being immersed in water. Are you with me so far? 
Now, I could, I could give you several examples, many examples, but I'm just going to give you two. They're both from Paul, just to show you. Oh, by the way, Paul is the same one who wrote this, chapter 6. Romans, he wrote Romans. So in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to tell you. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, or about the nation of Israel, rather. <laughs> speaking to the Corinthians, he's speaking about the nation of Israel who was led out of Egypt by Moses, and Paul makes this statement. He says, they were all baptized into Moses. They were all baptized into Moses. What? Now listen, I don't want to get into discussing that passage and trying to figure that out because there are some uh, difference of opinions among Bible teachers about exactly what that means. But what they agree about is that Paul is not using the word baptized there in that passage to refer to the practice of Christian baptism or water baptism. It couldn't be, right? Are you with me? So that's an example, a simple one. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. This one I'll pop up on the screen. Paul states this, For in one spirit, in one spirit, or by one spirit, it's translated both ways, we were all, speaking to Christians, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, that's just his emphasis. All, everyone that who's in Christ has been baptized. Every Christian has been baptized. It doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, they have been placed into the same body. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, so you see the word baptized there? Okay, what is Paul referring to here? Well, it's not water baptism. It's certainly not water baptism or the Christian ceremony that believers undergo in obedience to the Lord's command that they should be baptized, right? Is that what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, 19, right? So the disciples were supposed to go make disciples and do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and then teach them to observe everything that Jesus taught them, right? So, so people, Christians, should get baptized in obedience to the Lord that they say they are or to whom they are. I messed that up terribly, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so what is, what's going on here? It's not water baptism, it's not the Christian ceremony, but rather, listen, maybe you've never heard this, maybe you have, and if you have heard this, you may have been taught incorrectly about it. This is spirit baptism. Okay, so I'm pointing this out to say, not every time you read about baptism... Is it talking about water baptism or the ceremony that Christians undergo where they're dipped under and brought back out, okay? This is spirit baptism, and that is something that happens to every Christian, listen, at the moment of their conversion, and it is not something they choose to do or that happens sometime after they are saved, like water baptism. It's not like that. Rather, it's something that happens immediately, and it happens to them. So what is spirit baptism? What is that? Let me give more of a definition. It's generally defined like this. It's generally defined as the activity of Christ. It's his activity. Why do you say that? Well, for instance, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John, not the apostle John, but John the Baptist, as he's referred to there, he's baptizing people in preparation for the coming king. So that's not, that's not exactly Christian baptism either because they they're not professing faith in Christ necessarily. Or the, or the salvation of Christ, but forget all that, set that aside. John the Baptist, he says, listen, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it's Christ's activity, it's something Christ does. All right, you with me? It is the activity of Christ whereby or by means of the Holy Spirit 
every believer is baptized or placed into Christ's one body. So you could say that spirit baptism results in every Christian being spiritually joined to Christ, and because of that, every Christian being spiritually joined to one another. Since Christ's body is referred to as the church, and Christ referred to as the head of that body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Here, one source says this concerning 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and the topic of spirit baptism, or that subject. Christ immerses or plunges believers into his body at the moment of salvation, and causing them, via the agency of the Holy Spirit, to become one with Him. Spirit baptism results in us becoming one with Christ and united with one another since we're all placed into one body via the Holy Spirit. Spirit baptism. This unity is the... This unity with Christ... This unity is the basis of both our justification and our sanctification. In other words, if we're not united with Christ in this way, then there is no justification. You are not declared right with God because you're not in Christ. You haven't been credited with His righteousness. You don't have His forgiveness because you're not in Christ. And you have no hope of sanctification because you are not in Christ. Therefore, you are not united with Him in His death and resurrection which enables you to live for God and be sanctified. Spirit baptism, okay? Now, there's more we could say. I just want you to get that. And I took the time to tell you all that because, listen, some Bible teachers argue that the baptism Paul is referring to in Romans 6 is actually spirit baptism. That's what they, that's what they argue. And that Paul is not thinking about or referring to water baptism or the Christian ceremony in any sense. So let, let me explain that to you. If that is the case, if that is what Paul is teaching, that this baptism he's talking about is that spirit baptism, the same one he refers to in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, then it is the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, this immersing that has joined us into Christ we have been baptized into Christ by means of the Holy Spirit, and we have been united to Him through the Holy Spirit, and therefore we have been united with Christ spiritually in His death and resurrection. Are you with me? Okay, so that's one position, all right? That's one position. Others teach that Paul is thinking about water... Listen, he's thinking about water baptism or the Christian ceremony of baptism in Romans 6 but strictly in the sense of what it symbolizes or signifies, since it cannot, water baptism, secure or accomplish what it signifies. Well, what do you mean by that? I don't know. I was hoping you guys could figure that out. As I said, this is where it gets confusing. No, I'm going to tell you. In other words, Paul cannot be saying here that the Christian's water baptism actually joins them to Christ and his death and resurrection. He cannot be saying that. Because that would imply that people are not really saved until they undergo the ceremony of baptism. 
And that would contradict everything else Paul has said in regard to salvation or how one is truly saved. It just can't be that, beloved. He can't be saying, hey, guys, remember when you, remember when you went under the water? Remember that? Remember when they baptized you? Well, that's when you were joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. It can't be saying that. that. We know it can't be saying that. Even though this passage is difficult, enough of the Bible is very clear about how one is actually saved. By faith alone, in Christ alone, is one saved. End of story. Now, the saved get baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But baptism, that ceremony, cannot. It cannot save you. But so... People, some people say, yes, but he's referring to water baptism, but simply in the idea of what it symbolizes. So Paul is implying in Romans 6, listen, that the ceremony of baptism is a picture, is a picture of the Christian being united with Christ in his death or resurrection. Or you could say that baptism serves as an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality that has already taken place. So here we go. Listen, when you go down into the water then, That symbolizes the fact that you have died and been buried with Christ. That's your burial with Christ. That's your union with him in his death. And when you come up out of the water, that pictures the fact that you have been risen with Christ in newness of life. Not that it actually occurred right there in the water, but it occurred when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And that event symbolizes or signifies that great reality that happened to you the moment you placed your faith in the Lord for your salvation. Okay, you get me? So that's one view. These are, these are varying views, okay? So, hey, he's not talking about water baptism at all. It's spirit baptism. That's the most consistent way to understand it. No, he is talking about water baptism, but he's, he's trying to teach them. Don't you know what you're... Basically, he's trying to say, don't you know what your baptism meant? Are you kidding me? Do you think you can continue in sin that grace may abound? Hello! Don't you know what that baptism... That's what it signified, the reality that you've died with Christ. You've risen with him in newness of life. Hear me? Okay, it's possible. Other Bible teachers say that Paul is using the terminology of baptism, and this is the last one I'm going to give you, and there's, there could be more, but this is the last main one. He's using it metaphorically. He's using these terms, baptism, baptized, metaphorically. What does that mean? Well, to speak metaphorically is to suggest similarities between two different ideas without implying that they are identical. Huh? <laughs> For example, she is drowning in grief. You get it? It's a metaphorical phrase. Drown. Okay, it's not. So there's, there's similarities between the fact that she's drowning in grief and someone actually drowning, but they're not identical. You, you understand? Or I might say, he's fishing for information. So they're not actually. There's similarities between this activity and what's going on over here, but they're not exactly identical. And Jesus himself said, I will make you fishers of men. Ooh, you're a fighter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that he, Jesus speaks metaphorically as well. That was Matthew 4.19, in case you were wondering. Drowning and fishing are being used metaphorically in those examples. Now, follow me here, okay? The ceremony, the ceremony of Christian baptism, in that ceremony, the person is immersed or plunged. They're covered by. They're placed in, do you understand? They're placed into the water. Their entire body, it goes into the water at least the way we practice it. 
So metaphorically speaking, then Christians at the moment of their salvation have been baptized or immersed or plunged into Christ. You with me? The Christian has entirely been placed into Christ, spiritually speaking. And being in Christ or joined to Christ, they have been fully united then with his death and resurrection. They have been baptized into it. Okay. There are some variations now of that or combining even of the different positions I just gave you. You read some people and they've got all three mixed in there somehow. And there's some other arguments that I found just difficult to follow, so I didn't bother sharing them. Because if I can't follow them, I can't expect you to follow them. I mean, I can't even explain them to you exactly. But those are, those are the main ones, okay? Here's how I would generally explain now, based on what I just said at this point, this is how I would generally explain the, this part of Romans and handle the issue of how to understand Paul's use of the words baptize and baptism. What I want you to walk away with for sure is that it is not the ceremony itself, that act where one is placed into the water and brought back out, that they actually become. It is not the instrument through which they actually become united to Christ in his death and resurrection. That is not the case. Do you understand that? It's not the case. It can't be, guys. It can't be. Biblically speaking, it can't be. So what is Paul saying? Well, here's what I would say, generally. I believe that when Paul speaks about being baptized into Christ Jesus and his death, that he is definitely speaking clearly about the Christian spiritual union with Christ, a union that joins them to his death and resurrection. And as a result of that union, here we go again. The Christian has died to sin and has risen to walk in newness of life. These are spiritual realities. Therefore, they cannot continue to live in sin or, or, live, or continue in sin or live in it. Okay? Also, there is absolutely no biblical support for the idea that this union with Christ occurs when someone is baptized in water or undergoes the Christian ceremony of baptism. You can't say that. You can't be consistent with everything else the Bible says and say that. Um, yeah, I'm running out of time. But, you know, we do... Thomas is teaching, you know, the guys how to interpret the Scriptures. And one of those things you'll get to is when you have a difficult passage that maybe is a little hard to understand, you're not sure what it says, always interpret it in light of the ones that are more clear, that are absolute. Right. So if we have this truth, then we know how, whatever we come out with over here, we know it can't contradict this truth. And why do we know that? Because we have one writer, ultimately, one author of Scripture. He's the Holy Spirit. He's God. And he's not, uh, how would you say it? Psycho, no, what would you say, Thomas? He's not crazy. He doesn't contradict himself, but that's not the word I'm looking for. He's not a split personality. So he doesn't at one point say this and then say something else. He doesn't contradict himself. One author. So I've got to figure out, what is the Holy Spirit saying here? What, what is intended when, he, when these words were wrote through the Apostle Paul? So if I have a very clear passage, I must interpret the difficult passage in light of that. It is absolutely clear that we are not saved through the ceremony of baptism. We are not united with Christ through the ceremony of baptism. And then even think if that was true. So that means you could become a Christian, and I guess you're not dead to sin, you're not united with Christ. I don't even know how you can become a Christian because you've got to be united with his death to be saved from your sins. But let's just assume that could be, which it isn't, but let's assume it. Then you could go on living your life and you just live living a life of sin. And then, oh, magically you get baptized and woo, something happens to you right there and you're broken free from sin and now you start to live victoriously. 
So then I guess I could just look at people and go, well, no wonder he lives like that. No wonder he's still stuck in sin and he's not pursuing righteousness. He's never been baptized. You see what I'm saying? And as crazy as all that I just said, there, I found a couple of guys that actually, they said something like that. That's, an, that's just not biblical. All right. So it would not be consistent, but it would be consistent with the Bible, listen, to say that the spiritual, our spiritual union with Christ occurs when Christ immerses or plunges the believer into his body via the agency of the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit. It would be consistent. It is possible that Paul is speaking here about spirit baptism. It's at least consistent with what the rest of the scriptures say. And so he's using it in that way. It's possible. And finally, while it is certainly fine to say that water baptism symbolizes the spiritual reality, it's fine to say that. Our, our union with Christ, it symbolizes all that. Our union with Christ and our participation in his death and resurrection. Even though it's fine to say that, I'm just going to tell you, I am not sure that Paul had that in mind at all when he wrote verses 3 and 4. I'm not sure. I can't be sure. I don't know if that's what he's doing, that he's trying to explain to us what our baptism symbolized, it's possible. It is possible that that is what he was doing, that he was pointing it out, but I'm not sure. That he's saying, listen, guys, don't you know what your water baptism signifies? You were placed into Christ. You were placed into his death. Therefore, you were united with his death and his resurrection so that you would become dead to sin. You would experience that with Christ and rise in newness of life. Certainly, that's what it could mean. But what I know it does not mean is he's not talking about that actual ceremony when you experience that ceremony, that that's when it occurred. Okay? See, teachy. How do you feel about all that? You love it? All right. We'll do a little more teaching next week just for you, senior. Uh, I like the preachy stuff, so let's go back to that. Back... Let me just start off where or end where I started. Uh, some think that Christianity, some think that Christianity, listen, we're going to come back to that, but now we've done the legwork. Now we come back, look at verses 3 through 5, Lord willing, maybe 6 through 10. Ooh, that'll be a goal. And we'll kind of work, because now we've got the idea. It's all right there. And then when we get to verse 11, boom, exhortation, right? Just wanted to wake you up. Exhortation, that's where we get that. Oh, that's beautiful. Because basically, okay, he's teaching us something. He's telling us something. These are true. These things are true. And now based on these truths, then this is how you must live. you got to believe them. Therefore, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the answer to your victory over sin. It's already been accomplished for you. Now you've got to believe it. Ah, that's going to be so good, but listen. Uh, some think that Christianity is just a change in their ultimate destiny, right? That's what they, some believe that. Some are, some are misinformed. Some have been misinformed. Salvation is just a life insurance policy. No! No! When you become a Christian, if you really have become one, there is a real and important transaction or change that occurs which makes the idea that you would go on living in sin a ridiculous notion. One that you need, if you believe that, you think that's okay, you need to repent of it. You need to stop thinking that way. And if you go on thinking that way and living that way, 
That's a clear indication that transformation never happened. Huh? It's a ridiculous notion because the Christian has died to sin and they have been raised from the dead to walk in newness of life and that is the very purpose for which God has saved you. Assuming he has saved you. Listen, we would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ if you're not sure about your salvation. If you're questioning it, if you're wondering about it, if you could look at your life and say, hey, I, don't, I haven't seen any change. I'm not even sure I'm interested in change. I don't, you know, I don't know. I just thought I got a ticket out of hell free card. We would love to talk to you about salvation, what it really is, what the gospel is. You could communicate that to us right on your connection card. You could turn that in. Give us your, some information so we could contact you. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel. I would love to tell you what the Bible says about how you can be truly saved once and for all time. Justified, sanctified, united with Christ in his death and resurrection. 